Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about polling, something which we're, we've heard a lot about this weekend, which dates the podcast. But I imagine that will actually apply for pretty much every weekend until now and the general election. Uh, and it will be unlike Westminster to obsess over polls incessantly so we were looking for a great guest and we've got probably one of the best guests you could get to do this uh anthony wells is one of the leading political pollsters in the country having started for yougov uh, nearly two decades ago when i looked up wellsy yeah i didn't realize it was that long uh he's covered how many general elections i've got it as close to five i think at least four first one was 2010 okay just after 2005 you missed his miss fifth five uh, referendums um, and pretty much any political topic you came to, you named care to mention. I imagine Anthony's done a poll on it. So uh, he also set up the very influential and very good UK polling report, which was one of the first kind of big blogs in Westminster as well. Kind of uh, very, very well, well read. So the perfect guest to talk us through the world of polling. Welcome, Anthony. Um. With everyone we've had on the podcast, whichever their background, we've started, how did you get into your profession, into the world of politics? So for you, how did you end up, because when you joined YouGov, it would it was only like, what, four, wasn't the massive company it is today, it was four or yeah, five years probably old? Probably about 20 or so of us then, it was still, yeah. still a startup then, it just, just floated on the alternative stock market, so the month before I joined, so was wrenching everyone else had got shares when it floated apart from me and spent all their time watching <laughs> these shares rocket while i was the only person in the company who didn't have any yeah um before that i i worked here in parliament i worked in the leader of the opposition's office so i worked for william Hague, then ian duncan smith then michael howard um, um i actually left because I mean, if he listens to it, please don't take offence. I left because <laughs> I didn't want to work for David Davis, which is my great predictive powers, who I was certain was going to win. Really? Who was going to be the next leader. Um, uh, I didn't particularly fancy working for him. So Whatever so happened to the guy that beat him? Um, I'm not sure who he is now. <laughs> um, so we thought with polling, it's uh, as we try to do on Inside Whitehall, we're looking at things that are always talked about every single day in the media. And polling is definitely one of those. And I also think bits where people don't fully understand necessarily all the terms they're, they're reading. And I think that is also particularly true of polling, having worked in it a little bit myself. So I was just going to start. So YouGov, if you give us the basis, YouGov is one of the first online pollsters. And so when we talk about online polling versus other types of polling, what does that mean? Where do, why do people take, who are the people that take part in YouGov surveys? Where do they come from and why do they do it? YouGov, it's, it's an online panel to use the term. So it's a million or so people who have either been recruited or signed up voluntarily or responded to adverts saying, yes, I'd like to come and do surveys. And they get paid 50 points, which actually means 50p. Um, uh, they can cash in at the end for each survey they do. So basically it's people who particularly want to speak their mind or people who want to do a survey where they're traveling on the bus or on the train or just flicking around on the internet wanting to do something um and quite fancy getting a small amount of money in exchange for doing it um um YouGov was the first one to do it online or the first one to do it online at scale before that it was widely telephone before that it was widely knocking on people's doors um uh, technologically polling is sort of always running to keep up 
Yeah. As, as people change and the sort of venue for which people are willing to answer questions change. And so political polling, what you're looking to try and do is out of that big group of people, get a sample of representative people. Exactly. And there's different ways to, you, there's different bits of data you have to fiddle out to get that. So how is it you're always able to, because a lot of people will look at polls that they don't like, frankly, we, I'm sure all of us have seen this on Twitter and say, oh, well, that's by them. They're quite right wing or they're quite left wing. <laughs> or, the, or the classic one this weekend was a poll, I think it was conducted by YouGov. Someone said, well, it was, I think it was the David Frost one. So we said, well, it was conducted by David Frost. So, you know, obviously we'll have an angle, um, which, you know, wouldn't be true because the pollster wouldn't go along with that. But how, what are the ways in which you keep that balance? Because when I was first there, a lot of it, if, and tell me if my memory was wrong, because I wasn't necessarily the best researcher. There's a reason I'm not still in it now. Um, <laughs> was based on newspaper readership, which has obviously declined itself. And so maybe it's not still the barometer it once was for political views. Yeah, newspaper readership fell fell by the wayside after 2015 when we all got it horribly wrong. Right. Um, these days, actually, it's worth going to the things that changed in 2015. Okay. Because forever, everyone has obviously always tried to get the basics right. If you want a sample that's representative of the British public, you're going to have the right number of men, the right number of women, the right number of young people, the right number of old people, the right number of people in the South, people in the North. Those, and there's always something close to social class. Um, um, Beyond that, things have changed. So after, it didn't used to be that we'd try and have enough graduates or non-graduates. Um, uh, since 2015, and especially since Brexit, yeah. there's always been you have to have the right number of graduates. If you don't control for that, you end up having too many grads. Yeah. Um, uh, also, after 2015, it was we added political interest. So you made sure you didn't have the sort of, Anoraks like us who spend all our time watching politics and know who all anyone these listens are. to this probably exactly probably pretty much anyone who listens to this. There's too many of you in polls mm. and not <laughs> enough of the people who don't pay any attention to politics. And, you know, if, if if you ask if you yeah if you ask people to recognise photos of the cabinet, whatever, it will fall off after four or five people. Yeah, you know, people know obviously know who the chancellor is and the prime minister. Everyone knows who Michael Gove is. After that, it sort of falls away. If you ask people who the Secretary of State for Wales is and you don't live in Wales, mm. you probably got no idea. Do you know idea. that, Jonathan? David, T uh, David T.C. Davis. Okay, got that. Just a quick test there. Cool. Exactly. So, you, so there's, there's too, too, too knowledgeable to too many most polls. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need to get less of me. I mean, it's fascinating that because with you, YouGov came to actually my attention back in 2010 because a certain guy called Nadim Zahawi became the MP for Stratford-Navon where I was growing up. And obviously, his, one of his big pictures, he was an entrepreneur and obviously a co-founder of YouGov. And I think James is right. Sometimes we've got into this silly space on Twitter where people think that Pulse is more friendly to them. That's there. And actually, that wouldn't professionally work in that way. And Pulse has obviously have had bloody noses as well as having big victories. One of the interesting things was that YouGov famously, I think it was in 2017, said that they thought we were heading to a hung parliament. The only pollster at that time, I think, who was saying that. And then it seemingly sort of seemed to correct itself or it looked like people were suddenly questioning it. You've got maybe put out another poll right quite soon where it said, actually they thought May would win out of interest. Is that why, what was the lesson from 2017? Because obviously everyone was so sure May would do it. And obviously it was such a shock when actually came the result that was the, you know, the exit. Poll. If I, I just interject one thing on the polling, I was at CCHQ for 17. 
<clears throat> and I remember on the day of the election... Conservative campaign headquarters. Thank you, Jonathan. The, the, the central office. And on the day of the election, I said to someone senior, oh, you know, because it, you knew it hadn't been a good campaign. It had not been a great campaign. And I'd done Vote Leave the year before, which you knew was a good campaign. And I said, well, you know, where do you think we are? And I was told, oh, the internal party polling is fine. We'll get a majority of about 40. That was on the day. So that was definitely wildly wrong. But other pollsters weren't saying that. Yeah, it wasn't just us because, yeah, actually, Sebastian were close as well. So there's two. I don't want to grab credit, but it's not, <laughs> not true. Um, um, but the point... In 2050, 2017, a lot of the problem was that people had um, um, had overcompensated for 2015. Interesting. Okay. So, like I said, one of the reasons for 2015 was that people had got too many people who were too interested in politics, and the actual mechanics of how that broke polls was that um, uh, was amongst young people. Actually, we all know that turnout amongst young people is pretty low. Um, uh, if you get a bunch of young people who are really, really interested in politics, turnout isn't low. Those young people come out and they vote Labour. So if you have, if you don't have the interest in politics right, you end up getting the balance of, um, um, of turnout wrong. You end up getting young people who will actually stay at home on the sofa telling pastors they'll come out and vote Labour. Um, what, in 2017, getting young people who aren't interested in politics really, really hard to recruit those people to take part in polls. So a lot of what polling companies did in 2017 was instead of doing that, was to go for quite a fixed turnout thing and just say, right, we're going to, at the last election, only 30% of young people voted. We're just going to assume only 30% voted. But people fixed it a bit too hard, overdid it a bit. And so most of the companies were have it had a, a sort of fixed turnout model that was just understating labour amongst younger, younger age groups. And so they got it wrong. And we didn't do that. And so people put it down to the MRP. But actually there were other things at play as well. But why didn't you do that? Why, did, why, did, why were you in Servation not making that mistake? Is only, could you see it coming? Or you just didn't realise what the others were doing? Um, I didn't want to risk fixing something by doing something I thought was wrong. Okay. So actually, during the run-up to that election, I increasingly thought that um, um, I thought I was wrong for a lot of it. Yeah. I thought, oh no, my one's showing a hung parliament. Everyone else is showing a Tory victory. Maybe I tried to do something that was too hard yeah. and they all took the, the easier course that is actually going to work. So a lot of the time, I was expecting to be wrong Yeah. Um, uh, and was looking rather jealously at people who had taken an easier route. It's quite interesting because there must be a lot of pressure, right? You obviously, these polls are massive. They'll be put on the front page of newspapers, as we've seen, uh, as we record this podcast, the Sunday Telegraph, or the, sorry, the Telegraph into Sunday into Monday, the Lord Frost poll predicting a 97-style election if there was election held today. How easy is it to convince the higher-ups, as it were, maybe the company, to like, you've got to stick with this, the numbers we've run. How do you combat the pressure? Because surely, I'm assuming at that time, a lot of media would have been going, what on earth are you doing? Other pollsters may be reaching out. I don't know how often it, you reach out and sort of share certain bits of information to assist one another versus obviously your competitive companies. You've got to obviously retain, you know, that competitiveness. How much pressure was there applied to you over that time to, to sort of, or how much pressure were you under in particular to sort of say, is that definitely the number that you're getting out? There wasn't actually much 
external pressure in that sense. Stefan Shakespeare, Nadim's co-founder, who was the CEO then, was always been very supportive and very, basically, I trust your judgment, Wells. Um, um, in the pressure we put on ourselves, mm. I think, was more to the point because it was, in 2015, we got it wrong. If we got it wrong again in 2017, companies do political polling as their shop window. Mm. It's a really rubbish shop window. If you keep getting it wrong, you'd yeah. stop having a stop shop window, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. you know, so, so internally, we think of ourselves, we could... It's not a, if, if we keep getting this wrong, someone at some point is going to say, you know, we need to do something here. So internally, there was a lot of pressure, but externally, actually, the company high ups were very supportive and trusted our judgment. And so 15 to 17 was quite then a tumultuous time for all pollsters, not just YouGov, because the 15 election was a shock. I mean, I remember being shocked that 15 was a conservative victory. I, I was stood next to Stephanie Sheffens. We were at News UK. Were you there? News UK. Uh, 2015. Yeah. No, I was sat in the BBC studio when uh, they read out when they read out the um, uh, exit poll. We went. Fun. So we went. So you, oh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys do this now. You guys did. I mean, you guys still certainly does regular polling for the Times. We were doing regular polling for the Times, so we got invited to the News UK election party. So I was there. Pretty sure with Joe Twyman, who now was he there? I don't think he's there. I think Joe was um. um Joe was out on College Green doing interviews and he went out? to hide in the toilet. But it was definitely with Stefan. And we basically all went, all ended up back at the Yugov office at about midnight to one o'clock. And it was like, you know, what the hell? It was a big deal. It was a big deal. Because um, as Anthony says, like having worked there, it, the thing that people don't know, I mean, certainly about Yugov is actually, so it's probably the thing that most people know about Yugov is political polling. I don't know what it is now, but when I was, even when I was there, it was probably less than 10% of his business was political polling. The mo the, you know, the bulk of YouGov's business is huge kind of reports and regular polling for Pepsi and McDonald's and all these kinds of people and Coca-Cola, et cetera. And, uh, this, and so internally the political team is relatively small compared to the brand index team and all these kind of stuff. But as Anthony said, it's the thing that everybody knows. So you, you know. Yeah, I would also say you go with politics, naturally. That's because I'm also a political. And unlike so. anything else, it, it's measurable. So you, Anthony, will do a poll this year and all the other pollsters will do a poll and they will have their last election poll and it will say, this is what's going to happen. And unusually for most parts of life and certainly Westminster, two days later, you'll be able to say that was right or it was wrong. I mean, what, one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you Anthony is on the polling as well. Is there a, sometimes a difference between narrative and the actual results? Yes. So, because it is the case that when you look at some of the pollsters that claim to get some of the big things right, maybe they weren't that accurate, but they kind of got the narrative right. So, it, how is how how is that important? It's really cutting when it's a close thing. And you say Brexit was. A poll of 2,000 people, margin of error is plus minus 3%. 2,000 people is plus minus 2%. 1,000 people is plus minus 3%. So you can't actually be righter than that. That is yeah. what random chance. So if you've, got an if you've got an election or a referendum where the result is 51% yes and you had 51% no, statistically, yeah. you are correct. Yeah. In terms of the narrative and the public judgment, you got it wrong. Yeah. You've got the wrong result and you're wrong. And there's nothing really you can do about that. You know, you are judged on getting the story right. 
Because we'll see that in the election. I mean, who knows how tight it'll be, but there is... Um, We've got all the different narratives, right? You've got Scotland and what happens there. Did the SNP fall back to Labour pick up gains? Reform. Reform, particularly in the Red Wall, you know, and uh, do are they the gatekeepers for a Conservative uh, MP or not? Then you've got the Liberal Democrats who have been targeting the traditional blue wall. And then you've just got Labour itself, which is polling I've seen and polling even I've had on my own seat. Labour, the brand, is very strong. But when you add in Keir Starmer's name, has a difference. And the same is for Rishi Sunak and the Conservative brand. So it's quite interesting that all those things are factored in. I found in my own seat, for example, that Rishi would poll higher when it was done at the time anyway than the Conservative Party yeah, brand. That's right. It's normally Keir Starmer around. actually yeah. is doing a poorer He's compared right. to the Labour brand. So trying to then figure all out how people are going to vote when I suppose you could argue well, we're moving more to maybe a presidential presidential style election is going more and more apparent, particularly because we've had way too many elections since 2015 and what I think we all care for is keeping you, I'm sure, busy today. So how do we, how is that all factored in as well with like leaders and individuals versus parties? Because obviously I'm assuming some people might say Labour, yes, not sure, but Starmer, yes, or vice versa with uh, Rishi. That's a good question, actually. I mean, in terms of better... I'm pitching for a job, basically. Uh, yeah, <laughs> in terms of what's the better predictor, because you do get them... Uh, it's, if, you ha if, you, if, you, if you ask a question that says, imagine that the next general election, the leaders are um, uh, Starmer, Sunak, Ed Davey, um, um, Richard Tysaway, and you ask, that, how would you vote then? The answer you get at the moment is pretty much the same you know, as, as the normal voting intention. Right. If you asked it during the last part, during the yeah, last parliament, um, uh, and one of those names is Jeremy Corbyn, it suddenly made a great big difference. You saw a several point drop in the Labour vote, even though Jeremy Corbyn was leader anyway, just reminding people of the reality that Jeremy Corbyn was there. Hey, so when you did a just down. straight voting intention versus when you did a prompt for leader, you immediately got a yeah, change. Yeah, you got an immediate effect, just given the current leader's um, uh, and you had that. Um, um, I suppose we're seeing that at the moment play out in the media. They're saying we like Nigel Farage. It's only been pushed by Nigel Farage supporters that reform gets this. But if Nigel was the face of the organisation yeah, a bit it, more, that bumps them up. Do you, do, you think that's, yeah. do you think that's true with reform? Then, if Farage was to come back, reform itself would potentially increase. In so far as you can test it with polling, yeah, yes, it shows they go up by three points. I mean, it's hypothetical stuff is always slightly yeah. dicey. You don't know what the big media narrative about it is and why Nigel but said there is solid back data and all that. of that. But yeah, we asked it. Solid data bumps them up by three points. Uh, but currently, despite the fact, so the, as Jonathan said, we'll keep hearing that Rishi polls above his party, uh, and indeed it is the reverse for Keir Starmer. <laughs> It, but the, the mo but the interesting thing that yeah, you said is it's not strong enough. It's not strong enough to move it. To, to so when that, you prompt, yeah. that doesn't change voting intention at all. Doesn't make any difference. That's I think. really it's, interesting. Yeah, it's not strong. And the concerted uh, strategy right now is very much one of if we push the whole Starmer narrative and make Starmer the face of it, then that might help retain some vote or not see vote. I'm not Labour. sure how much there is in that. Just because what you described there, Labour of a strong Labour of a stronger brand than their leader. The Conservative leader is a stronger brand than his own party. It's almost always the case. Um, uh, I think it's just because Labour is probably a stronger brand than Conservatives, yeah. just in terms of the, the things that people associate with it. So I don't. I seems to be pretty much baked in. So obviously, if we found a, a Conservative leader who polled a mile above his party, you'd think, okay, that's a good strategy. If you found a Labour leader who was a mile below his party, like Jeremy Corbyn. 
it would have been a good um, technique to focus so on a hyper- that. So <clears throat> um, some people, and I'm not saying any of those people are sat right next to me, <laughs> they might suggest that if a certain blonde dude came back to the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson at his height, he yeah. was really popular, would have been one of those. Yes. Okay. Although the slight caveat is Boris Johnson, when we used to, when we first asked about him, when he first ran for London mayor and indeed when he first came back to parliament, his ratings on loads of things on, you know, how likable you were, how honest he is, and that, that were, were completely off the scale compared to other people. Right. And that was, seemed initially to be because Boris Johnson wasn't judged as a politician. Right. People were used to, if you ask people what they think of lots of celebrities and people on the TV, just on, on average, they like those people a whole lot more than politicians. Yeah. Politicians just sort of starting baseline is we hate you and you have to be really nice to raise up to we only dislike you a bit. If you're, uh, so, and Boris Johnson. I might bring Anthony to the 1920 <laughs> because all MPs like to believe that like they've got their brand is so strong and that people vote for them because yeah. people shake their hand and say thank you. But it, the, the truth is they all just hate us. You'll put me in a room so I can tell all the people there that everyone hates them. I'd be lucky to escape alive. Um, um, it does yeah. sound like the normal 1922 committee anyway, so <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't, that's that's wouldn't be out of turn. <laughs> it wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, Boris to start with was judged as a politician, people, as, a, as a celebrity. So people liked him a lot more. And as he, as the years dragged by and he was clearly a politician because he was busy being prime minister, mm. then, then he dropped and started being, being judged like other politicians. But certainly initially, he was way, way ahead of the conservative brand. It's just to what degree was that the celebrity... So- of him I don't know if you can back how this is, but from what you're saying, whatever you think about what happened during Boris's time as PM, it was always likely that over time he was going to, the public were just going to end up seeing him as a politician. So even if he did a pretty good job in anyone's eyes, he was then going to be started judged on different criteria than before he came prime minister. Yeah, that's right. After, yeah, it, it was natural that sooner or later he was going to be judged as a politician, not as a celebrity. Obviously, that doesn't rule out him being judged pol- positively in politician terms. Yeah, um, um, it's just you know, sounds, lot, that innate sounds like it's not hard. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like we're all competing now to be less hated. Uh, and so, it. and some of the other points that there'll definitely be discussion of over the next few months. And I remember when I was this kind of talk, talking about this on various elections. So, how important, as Jonathan was kind of alluding to, the underlying factors. We'll see whether it's uh, Rishi or Keir and Tories or Labour, we'll see how they're judged on economic competence, dealing with crime, etc. So to what extent do you look at those things now to work out what might happen later on? Because so what I mean by that is the Conservatives are 20 points behind or whatever, give or take at the moment. Are there any underlying things you look at now to judge, like whether that might narrow, those things might change over months? You know, you've seen it's so many elections issues, now. Yeah. We don't at all. And uh, it's been because we don't actually, this is probably one of the main, main misconceptions of what we do, is that we don't predict. Okay. We measure what the picture is now um, um, and, you know, what might happen in the future. We can, we, Hypothetical questions are always slightly dodgy, you know, and we can highlight things where people are strong or weak and parties may choose to focus on that and so on. Mm. But we don't generally make that prediction of, we think, we may in commentary talk about this potential for to narrow because there's this number of don't knows and things, but we try and steer away from actually predicting apart from that final poll. 
you know, that final poll the day before actually is a prediction of what will happen a day later. You know what, but on the so on the prediction point though, um, not asking you to make a prediction, just on historical evidence. The, one of the other things that people say quite regularly is, "Oh, it always narrows as you get close to an election," yeah, because the public tune in and uh, yeah, the pub. I think the two key points is certainly we do some focus groups at my company, and you really can see what Isaac Levido has apparently said to uh, lots of lots of you guys in the briefings he gives, which is the public are very tuned out. They re I think they really did get tired of it. I think that is true. And so they're going to all tune back in, see what happens to them then. And then perhaps the other thing is, I think Tony Blair once said, you know, during the midterm, people rate the government off their ideal, I think he said. And during the election, that's when they actually compare you to the other guy. And so those, maybe they're two factors. Is, but is it historically in polling terms to say that as you get close to an election, the polls will tend to narrow in the government's favour? There's, they do. In anything like that, the main point is we don't have many data points. How many, how many general elections have there been? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, there is a tendency to do that. Um, um, and there's, the question is why? Because, you know, you don't, is it just, it doesn't happen by magic. There needs to be reasons for these mm. people to do it. Um, um, there's a couple of factors. The one that I think you can take most confidence from is don't knows. At the moment, there's an awful lot of people who voted don't know um, um, at the last general election. Who voted, sorry, who voted conservative at the last general election who are currently saying don't know. Um, um, if history is any guide, those people were more likely to move back to the conservatives than to other parties. It's hope for you. Um, um, Hang on, I'm going to dash it in a sec. Oh. Sorry, mate. Um, um, <laughs> Why are you building me up? <laughs> you see the hope on your face then. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, come on, tell me. Those <laughs> um, says, um, um, I would expect that to now, that's, yeah, some of those don't knows to move back to the Conservatives. Some other proportion of those don't knows will, will sit on their hands or decide they can hold their noses and vote Lib Dem or Labour or something else. It won't be all of them, but, but disproportionately, they'll probably move back to the Tories. The caveat, I would add, is that some pollsters take account of that already. Those are the pollsters with the smallest, the smallest Labour leads, and that's why they've got the smallest. Oh, interesting. Leads. I wondered that. Okay. And, and so don't look at the don't look at the narrow what the the narrowest leads and say a couple more points off that from don't know and I'll be fine because they've already found that. In. I'm going to go yeah. dash everyone's hopes in 1922 <laughs> with Isaac Levito tonight and go. Those narrow polls, yeah, that's not good news. That's bad news. That's the best case scenario. That's interesting. Going in and that includes. I didn't realise that. So that's for the part of that includes our MRP um, um, for Lord Frost. So hang on, that your... the don't knows are already factored in. So that's, so that's the good. Scenario. That's the MRP's fact. The MRP, sorry, the MRP. That's fa so that, already, that already had here. the don't knows. You factored knows. in the don't knows. That's already got the don't knows. Well, it's nice knowing you all. <laughs> what? So reason two. Well, let's I'm go forward to being the former. <laughs> let's go to Tony Blair's one. Um, um, oh I, 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 I broadly, I, I think he's. There's a lot of sense in what he says. Then it's not one that you know. It's, it's not one I. And there's much evidence to actually back up his instincts. Is the same as mine. Mm. That midterm people, when people are answering questions to a pollster, they're saying when they're saying I'm going to vote Labour. That's their way of pro or reform or whatever else. That's their way of signifying that they don't like the government much and yeah. they're unhappy with them. When it gets close to an election, it stops being that and it transitions to be, 
how I'm actually going to vote in four weeks' time, yeah. which party I actually like. Um, um, as it's a scant bit of evidence, but just what I'd look at is um, um, the 2017 snap election again and what happened to UKIP. Um, um, mid midterm, where we thought it was midterm, it happened to actually be about six weeks before an election. Yeah. UKIP was happily along, bouncing along, quite a high level of support. Almost immediately, Theresa May called the election, UKIP support completely fell through the floor and vanished mm. because it had suddenly stopped being it's midterm and I'm going to say UKIP because I'm unhappy with the government and suddenly became, how am I going to vote for in five weeks' time? And that's, that happened just like that. That's fascinating because, again, I think there is a working presumption from members of parliament, from campaign activists, that when it comes to a general election, disillusioned conservative voters who are looking at reform or considering reform or, or leaning reform, when it's actually the moment where they've got to go to the ballot box and they've got to vote, I think the conservative messaging is hopeful that the idea of a vote for reform equals Keir Starmer, that will sway enough in some seats or a large portion of those people to mark the conservative box, however much it, pinching of the nose is involved. So based on that, that is a logical kind of view. Is, yeah, that's, my guess is we'll, the only bit I differ on that is that it will take as long as, as polling day. Actually, it'll probably start being squeezed during the campaign. So yeah, literally on the on the, it'd be very hard to factor that in until you actually. CCHQ that they, they say they expect. Someone there said who knows the polling well said they expect reformers to perform to move back to the Tories, but they expect it to be very late. The the critical thing for that they said is Starmer. So your your average reform voter, frankly, is not happy with the Conservative Party, uh, but. The moment they fully realise Keir Starmer is about to be the prime minister, that will that will shift them. I think it's, yeah. that's their working assumption. I mean, on something we've also just touched upon, your point on the don't knows. <clears throat> so, I think I think you would admit this, Jonathan, which is the biggest issue or a big issue that a lot of MPs face and the party, the Conservative Party, frankly, faces at the next election is voter apathy. Um, and uh, Robert Shrimsey of the FT, I think, was the first to point out that between 92 and 97, while Tony Blair and Labour did very well, one of the key factors was yeah. around 2 million voters just simply staying at home to, because they weren't scared of Blair. Yeah. They were fed up with the Tories after uh, 18 years. And so how, how are you able to factor in that kind of differential turnout? Because, for example, on vote leave, I, I found it fascinating. On vote leave, um, and I'm... I don't think I'm quite correct here. We knew that a very low turnout would probably lead to a leave victory. And a very high turnout, as we got quite a high turnout, would also put us in a good chance of victory. Your typical general election turnout, your kind of late 50s, early 60s, that would have probably delivered Remain a victory, which, I mean, it's interesting in the sense of how... Obviously, you know, we're going to decide the next prime minister, but one of it is not who votes for who, it's who just doesn't turn out to vote. And how easy is it to factor that when you're asking someone, because the key thing is, is that person actually going to go out to vote? It's incredibly difficult. That's the, it's the trickiest bit, actually, is turnout. Um, um, a, because people lie. It's seen as a, still, especially amongst older people, it's seen as a civic duty to go and vote. Right. And so people don't like admitting they haven't voted. Um, um, it's so true. Yeah. Is it? So as you back on Anthony's point, so political parties, 
or anyone politically can pay for what's called the marked register, where we get the list of everyone who did go to the polling station and every party will have a system where you input that data. And the amount of people that I've got on my own system were like, oh, they're definitely voting for us. And <laughs> zero out of five times have actually gone to the ballot box. Yeah. It drives you absolutely nuts to the point where you go, just, I'm not going to bother with all that energy, the letters or the envelopes or the, sorry, the leaflets or door knocking because they keep saying they're going to vote for me. Yet their voting history says otherwise. So as candidates, as parliamentarians, you have to fax that in every time you can. So that's why, like, if I look at my, a lot of my recent projects, sorry, Anthony, I will come back to you because you'll be much more interesting. A lot of my literature I've done recently, I've made a strict rule of they must have voted at least 80% of the time from the mark registers we've got. If they haven't, I'm not going to contact those people because I want to find out those who I know definitely going to vote first and then I'll work cascading down on those mm. who choose. And in Stoke, for example, an interesting area turnout is in the 50s, traditionally for a general election, but yet where was what, the highest what, election was the referendum. But is that, so for people listening there, is 50, you're saying 50 is high, low, medium? I think the average is most constituencies around the 60%, 60 percent mark. Yeah, yeah. Stoke was 58% in 2019 for my seat, sorry, Stoke North. That was a lot higher, it has been down to 52%. So there's a lot of That's voter apathy. a lot apathy. of apathy in places like Stoke, yeah. But the only time they did come out in large numbers was the Brexit referendum. That's because it was a very well-run campaign. <laughs> is that you? Is that you? Inspired, <laughs> inspired by Starkey. <laughs> exactly. So you're the, everyone send the blame letters to you for the pods. If anyone listening, feel free. Yeah, feel, feel free, free to send all the blame. Go for way. it. Have fun. So, but how? So how do you factor it in though? In the in the how do you? I've heard there's scales. People don't count above eight to tens, and all there this is, kind of. But they have it's. It's a choice between how much you trust people's own answers, actually. Um, um, it, it's always that balance between, you've got two ways of judging. You can either judge it based on, has that person said they're going to vote? Or you can judge it on demographics of that person. Because we know in reality, however likely young people are to say they vote, um, um, we know they are less likely to vote than older people. We know that class correlates to turnout. Um, um, so you can model it, or you can trust people, or you can mix those two things up, or you can. The only other, the other factor we include is normally how likely people say they are to vote and whether they voted last time. However likely you say you are to vote, if you didn't bother turn, if you if you've told us you didn't bother last time, actually we're we assume actually yeah you might you say you're going to vote, but we don't believe you mm. and we weight them down a bit. Um, um, and on top of that is that problem of polls having too many people who are too likely to vote in a new way. Yeah, and the so, nerds. Yeah, the exactly. Nerds. When you're adjusting it to try and get the right balance of people and people are lying to you on top of it and people who are even trying to be honest aren't very good predictors of their own behaviour, you've got a really difficult <laughs> thing to do. So you'll, you'll rarely, if ever, you should never, but people do strange things, you should never find a polls to say, oh, based on my polling, the turnout's going to be 66% or something because it's just too hard to do mm. with myself. I was interested because we obviously we like to really try and be educational like this. We've talked about polling. You referred to a thousand respondents or two thousand respondents, and then we use this term MRP. Out of interest on that, do you mind just explain the difference for listeners? Like what are, what are the differences in an MRP poll and the sort of the standard weekly polls where it's a thousand to two thousand people who are responding? Mm -hmm. A standard one thousand, two thousand is um, actually probably worth starting with another with another sort of common misapprehension is that. It, about 1,000 people would give you the margin of error of plus or minus three, and that means that 95% of the time, the actual results of that poll should 
all other things being equal, be within three points of the actual figure if you went and polled the entire population. Bigger a sample gets, the smaller that margin of error will be. Um, and it's it's a law of diminishing returns. So if you go up to 2,000, it goes down to 2,000. It goes down to plus minus two, but going up to 5,000 doesn't increase it that much. And so, right. so 1,000, 2,000 tends to be the sweet point because it's not that expensive. It gives you a relatively small um, uh, margin of error. Now, if you've got 2,000 people, we've got 650 constituencies, means you've got about three people in each constituency. Yeah. So if you want to know who's going to win Stoke North, there's absolutely no use whatsoever. So, I mean, if those three people are very conservative, let me know because that would be quite helpful. I need to go. Please go to <laughs> You'll take the three. I'll take the three. Yeah. I'll take those three, but I need to bag them now yeah. based on the MRP. Yeah. And MRP is a way to try and get seat level, seat level um, estimates with at least a, not a massive poll. You know, if you were going to do traditional polling and get a steer on each seat in the country, you'd want at least 500 people or so in each seat. And a poll that's of 300,000 people would, isn't going to happen for price cost reasons yeah. yes um, um even for a conservative donor yes. <laughs> so you can do an mrp for yeah for 10,000 12,000 14,000 sort of people the way you still only got in that seat obviously you know about 20 or so people in each seat so a normal just what sort of 20 people in stoke north say wouldn't be enough to give you a good take so what an MRP does is it stands for multi-level multi-level regression and post-stratification. Um, uh, what the two bits mean is the multi-level regression is you model which bits relate to how people vote. So it's basically how does your age and your past votes and your class and your gender and, and so on, how does that relate to how people vote? But it's multi-level because at a second level, you also see how those people behave in different types of seat. So if we've said that, you know, looking at middle-aged men, this proportion of middle-aged men will vote conservative, this proportion of middle-aged men will vote Labour. How does that differ when suddenly, if it's a seat that was a Lib Dem seat last time, or first of all, more to the point, because it's more complicated than that, a Lib Dem seat in the southwest that's got, you know, high that's, that's a marginal. So it's how do those different groups of people behave in a particular political context? When you've got that, then you use that data to model each individual seat in the country. The final step is then you do compare it to the 20 or so people in each seat because if our model is predicting, yes, this seat, you're 80% Labour and 20% Conservative, but amongst our 20, our 20 people, actually, oh, they're all Conservative from the Dems. Then you'd think, oh, actually, there is, well, you wouldn't, the, the computer would think, oh, there is something going on there, and it would factor that in and move it towards conservatives and Lib Dems. So you're basically using the, the answers of similar people living in similar seats to model what would happen in each individual seat. So I'm going to ask a question on behalf of MPs. Because this is... I'm not giving this to him, by the way. No, 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 not giving it to Jonathan. Another MP, I spoke to over the weekend, um, as they were looking at one of these MLP polls, said... I was a lot of MPs that you starting? I do, but no journalist is the crucial thing. But no journalist. So that's the, that's the crucial So for the Whip's thing. office listening, James Starkey just knows MPs. Yes, that's true. <laughs> 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 Although, unlike you, I don't need to worry about... Although you don't worry about the Whip's office, so we're both in the same <laughs> <that> one. Hey! <laughs> um, so, 
MPs will, and people around politics, myself, I'm sure many people listening, go and zoom in on individual constituencies. Yeah. So we've seen when MRP polls are done, the thing the newspapers love is, you know, cabinet minister to lose seat, et cetera. High profile person to lose seat. Without, I'm not asking you to do down your own poll, um, but I'm curious how, obviously it gives a pretty, a much better idea than a Nash, a Nat, a standard 2000 NAT rep poll. Let's zoom in on Stoke North. But can you really look at Stoke North on an MRP poll, even if it's 10,000 people? And would you lay your hat on like, if this really did happen tomorrow, that is pretty much what would happen? They are, there's limitations in it. First, if a seat is unique enough, then it's not going to work. Okay. So Devon East where you've got that strong independent candidate and not another seat that's particularly similar to it, it will actually, does actually pick up there's a strong independent vote there, but I'd still give it a pinch of salt on a very unusual seat. Right. There's other things it can, if there's a particularly strong labor, strong local issue that's good for the Conservatives or Labour, it may pick that up somewhat in the 20 or so responses, but not that well if mm. you've got a bigger one. In the run-up to the general election, we didn't have 80,000 people. There, it will pick up very local factors better. So your so your your MRP for the general will be eighty thousand. That's what we did in the last general election. Yeah, this is slightly rewinding. You met because you touched on it before, Anthony. But I, I'm curious. So the other thing we get every election on, on voting is uh, I don't know. I, I suspect we'll get we'll definitely get a bit of it this time. Is this is the election where young people are going to vote? And you alluded to it earlier that young people are statistically less likely to vote than older people. That changes through the age generation. Has, over the last few elections, have more young people started to vote? Is there evidence that that's happening? Yeah, that's interesting. Or, is there anything that's going on now in polling which points to that might be happening then? Because I, I would bet my bottom dollar someone will do a poll, and it will probably be the independent, that will say this is going to be the young people's election. No? And I'm curious it, where you are on that. It's actually still something of something of dispute within the academic community. Is how, what, what degree it did go up or down. Oh. Um, um, okay. Turnout's really impossible to measure. It comes down to things like the British election study face-to-face -face thing. And they, the reason that's what is, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, they go and look at the marked register and they all those young people who claim they voted, they go and say, oh, did you actually vote? So that's a um, huge um, study after each election? After each election, and it's a face-to-face -face one. So hopefully that gets around some of the problem of people who are too interested in politics taking part. <laughs> I suspect it doesn't completely get around it. Yeah. So, um, um, so straight after the 2017 election, there were... There was a lot of sort of youth quake, youth quake stuff, and yeah. uh, oh, Corbyn did well because young people came out to vote in their hordes for him. Yeah. Um, um, and after that, there was debate within the academic community of whether this people had jumped to the gun in claiming this, and whether actually once the BES came out and other sort of big um, uh, random sample surveys came out, whether the evidence was actually there. Um, I think the end point is more that turnout amongst young people did go up a bit mm -hmm. um, um, but it was you know wasn't something that was really a quake you know you've you've shudder tremor <laughs> you tremor yeah. yeah you've tremor yeah it wasn't it wasn't as much as it had been made out to be um, um i'd be surprised if it was this time 
Because give Jeremy Corbyn his due, he did appeal to lots of younger voters who may not have previously people people hadn't appealed to you previously. And it's not, yeah, Keir Starmer has taken the Labour Party in a different direction. Mm. I don't think there will be people at Glastonbury are not going to be shouting, "Ooh, Keir Starmer." No, probably not. You'd be happy for Jeremy Corbyn to come back, though, wouldn't you? If they want the youth claim, I'm very, very supportive. I've got a question for you, Jonathan. So. As a as an MP, as a politician, how much do polls impact you? Because I know one one reason I asked that is, um, say we've just seen this we've seen this big MRP yeah. poll. It's got a lot of coverage. I looked at it, and I must say, and I'm sure it's very interesting, and say overall the overall polling in that MRP poll doesn't tell us anything we didn't already know. Like the the kind of overall leads and the likelihood based on that overall lead of what was likely to happen at the next election, to me, wasn't really a surprise that interesting. Mm. But nonetheless, putting it in stark terms, which is 10 cabinet ministers would lose their seat, the Tories would be left on, I think it's 164 seats. That has definitely captured some people's attention. Is that the case with you? Yeah. How much, when a poll comes out, does it look, affect look, where you are? So it's interesting because when you're outside the tent and you're a campaigner or a candidate or whatever, every poll matters because you're trying to do, then go onto electoral calculus and figure out uh, what does that mean for my seat? Am I in the chance of winning or losing? I found since I've become an MP, uh, it's used in many different ways. It's been used by every leader to show that things aren't that bad and you have caught supportive colleagues of the said leader in the WhatsApp groups going, oh, look, like this proves we need to stick together or this shows actually we're public are responding really positively. Mm -hmm. Some people also will then use it to send to colleagues and go, look how bad things are. This is why we need change. or This is why we need to force the government's hand. Uh, and I'm sure this MRP poll will be used, for example, with the Rwanda vote. People will be saying that, look at the truck. There's no trust in the country right now. We need to go harder. Um, we need to hold the government's feet to the fire um you know if we just go along with the bill this is what's available if we if we go further we can quash reform and you know you can, you can convince yourself of many different things mm. um i tend to because there are so many different sort of newer polling companies out there and they are varying from such wide numbers i've kind of have mentally tuned out mrps do grab my attention because they are bigger and they are much more starker, I think, and the data is much more solid. So, yeah, there's no doubt. Like this morning, as we're recording, when I read the Telegraph report and I looked at the seats, I was, and you look at actually the map. I think the the color of the country in 2019 to what 2024 will look like. You can't help but just pause and go, blimey! I know Stoke, the first time in history being an entirely blue city, is now being predicted as an entirely no, sorry, not predicted. Anthony was correct. We use the word predicted. Pulses don't. But it, the pollsters were saying if there were an election today, Stoke would be entirely red. You know, it's a dramatic change. And it hasn't been a case since 2017. You know, momentum was looking a different way. You look at actually my local reporter, Richard Price, who is a fan of the pod. That's why I gave him a shout out. Tunes in. <laughs> but man. Richard Price did the maths and he said Staffordshire, which has been a bellwether county for many generations, would go to six and six. Have six Labour MPs, predominantly all in the north of the Staffordshire. South Staffordshire would retain Conservatives. So again, interesting that that pretty much what it was like under Blair in 97. So it's, uh, I think that's a stark thing when you start to see certain seats, you see certain names as well of cabinet ministers, you're thinking blimey. Well, let me ask trouble. you this. So sorry, I you're, no, 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 you're, I think it's interesting. I mean, you're kind of 
looking at the next election and your chance of victory, how much do you look at the poll and think, God, this is insurmountable or or, and also on the flip side, when you look at it, are there things in there that you do think, actually, we do need to start to get behind the PM because they're saying they don't like disloyalty or I'm going to need to fight really hard on this Rwanda thing because it's quite clear that immigration is going to cost me my seat. I mean, are those, is that part I of know, it? I think, I know that there's, there's the most first initial response is, oh God, I'm in trouble or happy days. I'm looking good. I'll either survive or when I came in 2019, I generally thought the way that the Tory party came in 18 majority a lot, if it delivered on the promises and we didn't have COVID and other things that come along, I think arguably I would have been able to sit here and go, I think I'll get a second term. I felt very that confident. Mm. I think now, yeah, I look at it and I go, okay, so I'm now looking at the reform vote. What's the reform vote? How can I squeeze that? How can I appeal to those people? Uh, how can I convince those people and remind them that, as I would say, a vote for reform is technically a vote for Labour in my constituency. I look at Labour and I look at then the local elections and what did I notice in Stoke in the local elections? I noticed that actually there was a lot of Labour suppressed vote, apathetic vote that were not supportive of Corbyn. They didn't turn up in the 2019 May local elections. They didn't turn up in the 2019 general election. And a lot of those people were now coming back out to vote whilst at the same time, a lot of our voters were choosing to sit at home. So a lot of people that we thought just didn't vote because Stoke for conservative data, we've had to work on it a lot over the last four years. That was something I was like, blimey, okay, these people are, they're motivated. The Labour suppressed vote is now motivated to come out and ours isn't. I think with issues, I think it goes to Anthony's point a bit earlier. It's easy to kind of, I think we can convince ourselves. I am a firm believer that it's the economy stupid. I do think that the economy will always reign supreme. Well, so last question for you, Anthony, and partly maybe having listened to, you know, an MP talk about to listen to Jonathan, how he views polling, but I'm sure you get millions of questions. There's lots of discussion of each of the polls that you could do because they're very high profile. What are the, what's the advice you would give to listeners when they're looking at, be it just a straight nat rep poll, the MRPs, we're going to see them throughout the year. As Jonathan said, the people that commission them will always seemingly find the thing that proves their point, no doubt. Uh, but all the pollsters are independent and, you know, they'll be kind of producing balanced polls. What tips and pointers would you have for people who are looking at polling in election year that would help them kind of understand them more and read them in, in what they are? Voting intention are, are almost the simple ones in that and the, and the dullest ones. They're the ones where, you know, obviously the media always, you must ask voting intention, you must ask this, and it's almost counts as a proper poll. They are, especially in a general election where they're sort of for your day or whatever, mm. they're very dull. Yeah. Um, uh, essentially, it's, if you've got a poll, you've got a 3% margin of error, then you get a poll of, oh, Labour is up to, doesn't mean anything. Conservatives are down three, doesn't mean anything. Each individual voting intention poll, don't get too hung up on. It means almost nothing. Look at the average over the week or the month or so-and-so and see if there's any trends there for each individual one. People will post it on Twitter and go, oh, this is a great poll for Labour. Yeah. It's rubbish. It's just, it's, it's almost always just noise. You can ignore that. For policy ones, give a huge tub of salt to anything that is hypothetical. Any, you know, how would you vote if this? How would you behave if that? Because people themselves aren't very good predictors. And that's often a good, a really important thing to wonder. You can ask anything in a poll. And people will answer because people are helpful. Mm. But the answer they give is only going to be useful if they actually know and understand. So if you ask people, 
what would make you vote Labour? What would make you vote Conservative? Actually, we don't really know that mm. because we're really complicated creatures. The best, the best example I always I give to try and get people to grasp is supermarkets, obviously all their decisions on how they stock their food and what they order and things is based on sales data. They know that if you put something on the middle shelf, it will sell better because it's in people's eye line. But if you ask people, why do you go and buy this? People say, oh, I buy things on quality and price. They never say, I buy the thing on the middle shelf. Yeah. So people don't, aren't particularly good judges of what they want and what's important to them. So we actually, to understand that, you need to go and look at some of the academic data. We know what's important to them. It's their party loyalties and their, which party they identify with and they feel shares their values. It's what they think of the leaders. If they rate them, it'll be a good PM. It's who they think is going to be most, in, most competent on the most important issue. And that's about it most of the time. All those that sort of down the, down the paper issues and things. And, you know, there'll be a million pressure groups out there claiming that <laughs> if you do our policy, you'll yeah. win the election. Our <laughs> policy on crayons could get you a hundred thousand votes. And none of those things will matter much. It's do you look like a competent issue, a competent government that will address the issues I care about? Do I think that person will be a good prime minister? Does that party share my broad values? Those matter that's the critical thing that's very that's very informative i say thank you anthony for sharing everything and being education said his shock about <laughs> today's mrp as of time of recording this is that uh that's the in the don't knows that's gonna scar me for the rest of the day so i'll go and i'll go and share share that cheery news in 1922 but look thank you for coming along anthony thank you to everyone who's listening in and for tuning in as always please make sure that you leave a rating and you leave a review to tell us what you thought of this episode and all the others. Please make sure that you hit subscribe on however it is that you listen to your podcast. And you can, of course, follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Whitehall Pod UK. 